Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, The Truman Show. In the year 2000, Big Brother aired for the first time. But it wasn't nearly as apocalyptic as The Truman Show. Yeah, and uh, Truman Show's two years earlier, 1998. I mean, I, I know you said Big Brother's 2000. Are we, we're talking British there? I think the, well, the British one came first, right? I believe so. And yeah, 2000. I've never seen a reality TV show. So, I've obviously caught a little bit of TV when other people have had it on. The one time I ever watched Big Brother, I was at a sleepover, and we turned on to the 24-hour version of Big Brother, and it had a fly in a spider's web right in front of the camera, and the spider was coming down and eating it. That's probably And we just watched that. Yeah, that's more interesting than the show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's way more interesting than the people. That's the only time I've watched it. And let's get to the people here today. Uh, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Nice. nice. Hardcore it all in. Today's movie is The Truman Show. And um, we are bringing a guest in a moment, but I'm actually flipping the script just a little bit. And I want us to uh, get into where we first came across this film. Uh, Luke, do you have any, any initial impressions that stuck? I definitely watched it pretty early. It wouldn't have been in the theatres. I think I was a bit too young to watch a film like this in the theatres. But I guess we would have got it, like, rented it on maybe tape? Okay. Right after it came out. And it was a Jim Carrey film, so I was bang up for sitting down and watching it. But it, I remember it sticking with me, but I don't remember many specific details. Just, like, lines and stuff. Yeah. This one I got a little more of a story on. I was actually in um, university when it came out, and we got a... I think the release of the movie was pushed back because we saw a preview screening and then it didn't come out for like two or three months after, like in the theater. There's like a big gap between our preview screen. Maybe it wasn't even the final cut, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so we had this weird movie that we couldn't really talk to people about because in 98, the frame of reference, it's sort of like you had to see it, you know? No one really right. had much reality TV as a, as a template. And... Um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, she, she, went, she still felt we should be following religion, so we were going to the Episcopal Center at the university. And not too long after this came out, it was a, um, I remember it was like a, a group discussion of this movie, right? From a like Episcopal perspective, which is kind of the thing I guess people tend to bring to this movie with, uh, you know, father, son, suffering, all that. It's a pretty ham-fisted metaphor, though, I think, with this movie. Right. Uh, because... The way I see it, it, it definitely has a very different flavor, and that, that's where I want to bring our guest in. Um, to, to really get into this movie, uh, we talked a little bit in The Matrix. Uh, I did badly about the, the Gnostic 
uh, perspective. So today we have a guest. Um, he has Aeon Byte Radio podcast. It's hard for me to say that because uh, we do Eon here in Japan. But <laughs> um, I heard I've heard him give some very nice rundowns about Gnosticism. So um, well, Connor, hello, so welcome to the sanctuary. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I just I uh, heard you on the uh, Tinfoil Hat podcast about a week ago, and just uh, I thought your rundown of Gnostic concepts was so clear. I was like, man putting you with this movie for a discussion would be pretty amazing. And I think there's probably a few members of our audience who don't really know what we mean by Gnosticism. Uh, could you give us sort of a, a basic rundown? Well, if you've done The Matrix, you've got Gnosticism. That is sort of the modern Gnostic gospel. But to, <clears throat> to summarize, Gnosticism is an ancient esoteric tradition uh, sort of a very um, extreme mystery school of that appeared around 2,000 years ago and basically posits that we are trapped in a simulation, a construct by these uh, heavenly beings, or you might say demonic beings, called the Archons, headed by a figure called the Demiurge, who they associated with the Old Testament god, and that we're basically being farmed for something within us. As your listeners may know, the Matrix is because our brains create electricity for battery power. In Gnosticism, in ancient times, it would say it's uh, our divine spark that we share, that we uh, all humans uh, have a shard of infinity within us that fell into the darkness for some sort of a pre-cosmic cataclysm. And the shadowy beings hide this divine spark and hoard it down here in the material world in this simulation so it basically fuels the very reality that uh, we exist in and through a, <clears throat> a process of awakening usually instilled by a gnostic redeemer uh, morpheus in the matrix would come to mind although the gnostics would um, have allegiance to figures like Jesus or Buddha, Mary Magdalene, and so forth. An individual could awaken to his or her own divinity and begin taking these sort of astral flights to connect with a supreme intelligence beyond the stars and eventually break the hold of these archons and his demiurge and um, hopefully either get out of the universe or restore the universe. And they had varying degrees of beliefs, but I think in a a quick uh, summary that would be it yeah and i guess it's important to note um it, it got quite tied up with christian concepts but the the basic ideas here uh, far predate that I and mean, we get some of that in like ancient egypt with the osiris myth and stuff yeah you could easily make an argument that the gnostics were directly mainlining very old ancient egyptian uh traditions perhaps even uh, drawing from ancient Zoroastrian traditions, too. And it sort of all came together in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, which back then used to be the, the great metropolis for syncretic ideas and beliefs and experiments. So, yeah, you could make that argument that Gnostic ideas uh, predate Christianity, although what we know the most today of the ancient Gnostics would be the Christian Gnostics of those times and perhaps the the Hermetics, the pagan Gnostics from Egypt, and these later evolved into other uh, later traditions like Sufism and Kabbalah, 
the Cathars, perhaps the Knight Templars, and others that uh, spread across medieval times. Because the part, the part that I always found interesting was the, you know, the knowing yourself part, and the, um, you know, facing death to understand who you are, sort of stuff. The the business with the Archons and the beings of light. Um, I've I've heard all of that stuff before, but usually just in terms of combining it with other alien conversations and alien theories. I think what we're uh, maybe looking at here, and which really fits with the Truman Show well, is kind of the simulation concept. Right, right, right. Um, but I mean, depending how far you want to go with that, I mean, we know it's true to an, to an extent. We know that our brains are creating what we see. Like, scientifically, we know that for a fact. And it's just how much of... You know how much you're willing to give it that some of it must be real, or how, we, or whether you're just going to say now nah, maybe none of it's real. <laughs> of course, the the main the big conceit in the end with this movie is that it's not real; it's a movie. So, which uh, we've said before is kind of like a, a lame excuse. But in the case of talking about simulations and uh, simulated realities, like the giant dome in this, I, I guess it's worth bringing up. Well, and in terms of more literal, like this kind of very literal simulated realities. They're more and more common all the time. Like, most people are putting out a fake version of themselves online all the time. Who is that perfect, always smiling, you know, domestic goddess version of yourself that Turin's wife, like, projects? That might be lacking in the, the spark, though, you know? I guess yeah. that's the, the point and, yeah, one of the things to get to. But, um, Miguel, when did you first uh, see the Truman Show? Just uh, lightening it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw it when it came out in the theater in 98, but uh, back then I was a practicing Catholic, uh, pretty new age too, uh, open-minded, so I didn't know anything, or I barely knew anything about Gnosticism, so I just saw it as sort of a, a critique of uh, modern media and uh, the modern audience uh, deconstruction of the movie-going experience, and I don't think, um, well, you guys are obviously younger, but even in the 90s, reality shows were very popular. I remember MTV had one. They were there, and uh, they were surging, and the movie, beyond its Gnosticism, because it seems so relevant today, it's uh, it was very prophetic how reality TV and being live and um, being in real time on TV or in any sort of uh, media would really dominate our culture. Yeah, so uh, I guess, Luke, uh, run us down a bit on the plot, and then we'll, we'll get a little bit deeper into this one. Okie dokie. Truman Burbank is an ordinary man living an ordinary life. He has a job selling insurance, a sensible little house, and a beautiful wife, Merrill. Though he's still secretly in love with a college crush who got away, Sylvia. Unfortunately, it's all a lie. Truman's whole life has been lived on a television set, 
and everyone he's ever met has been an actor. His crippling fear of water was deliberately instilled in him by the show's creator and director, Christoph, to keep him on his island home. A series of small accidents lead Truman to start suspecting the truth. A lighting fixture falls from the sky, his car radio accidentally picks up the crew tracking his movements, and his supposedly dead father sneaks back onto set. Truman begins to behave unpredictably, testing the limits of his domed world. He tries to flee by plane, coach, boat and car, but is rebuffed in every attempt. He becomes unhinged towards his wife and, even after a touching reunion with his father, still wants to escape. Finally, Truman manages to creep out of his house off-camera and face his fears aboard a sailboat. He reaches the edge of the world and, after a brief confrontation with Christoph, he steps out into the real world. We talked about it. Some uh, our first carry film was Sonic the Hedgehog, kind of a, a weird one to start with. Um, this though is definitely an interesting spot in his career because I guess this is his first kind of dramatic role. I don't. I think this is the one I always think of as his first. Definitely. When was Eternal Sunshine? That was a couple of years later, right? Oh yeah, that was like six years later. Yeah, because he's still in places doing some Jim Carrey wackiness here. Yeah, but usually out of sort of a manic desperation. I mean, right, there's right, things right. like him taught doing the scene in front of the uh, mirror and, you know, declaring Trumania, which apparently was just Jim Carrey riffing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can see why they hired Jim Carrey for this. Because it also, it it helps to to trick you at the start of the film into thinking it's going to be a much lighter comedic film than it is, right? So you are, you're in the same boat as Truman. You're like, oh, it's just going to be a fun, happy time. And then slowly, like, as he starts to peel back the corners of what's going on, you're seeing, like, behind that performance is like, oh, there's actually something a bit deeper and darker here. I guess that's one of the things, uh, like, we talked about other serious, most of the other serious, like, sort of Gnostic viewpoint films would be, like, Dark City or, like we said, The Matrix. Um, and as the title says, they're very dark movies. You know, I mean, The Matrix is fun because of the action, but it's, you know, kind of a depressing movie when you get down to it, where Truman doesn't seem that depressing to me. No, but then there is a, a sort of quiet sadness to the whole thing. Definitely, definitely. And even I put in my notes at the end, like the Truman Show 2 has, you know, it's very likely a depressing film once he leaves the uh, his bubble. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not going to have a normal life out there. <laughs> um, a lot of the names, of course, are pretty on the nose with Truman Burbank. I mean, it can't get too much on the nose, uh, more on the nose than that. Yep, he is the only true man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, Burbank, of course, being uh, the Hollywood re reference as well. Um, something I noticed looking at the cast is just everyone is here. I'm looking at it now. Okay, some of the other actors. Of course, Ed Harris as Kristoff, which I, I guess would be the, the demiurge of this movie, more or less. 
Yeah, he really reminds me of Steve Jobs. Yeah. Uh, Miguel, does that seem like a pretty um, on-the-spot demiurge for us, or, or is it something else? No, that's it. Classic demiurge. And, uh, and I would say Truman, I like to call it a documentary, and I can give my reasons why, but it is part of that amazing Gnostic fair that came out in the late 90s. Uh, you mentioned Dark City, The Matrix, but... You had the 13th Floor, Existence, Gattaca, Fight Club. You, ha you had all these movies with very parallel themes and certainly very strong Gnostic themes. But um, in the Truman Show, you definitely have the classic idea of the Demiurge uh, in Kristoff because many of the Gnostic texts talk about uh, they rewrote or deconstructed Adam and Eve and uh, paradise or Eden is actually a prison and Adam is there basically trapped there in this false paradise where the Demiurge can sort of farm him for his energy and experiment on him very much like Christoph does and Christoph himself uh, I think when he's doing the interview with the journalist says something like well I really want Truman to become the man he's supposed to be but then as soon as Truman is ready to escape, he's like, no, don't go out there because you won't. This is where it is out there is just even worse or the same thing. So Christoph, very much like the Demiurge, doesn't want Truman to reach his potential. He is a Truman is basically challenging the imposed reality of a powerful godlike figure and the reality making apparatus that Christoph has created for his uh, really narcissistic uh, re reasons in the end so that's definitely a very good example of the demiurge would be christoph and the false shallow empty really empty of um calorie world that he's created and trapped truman the simulation where he has him and one thing ed harris uh bringing you know acting that role i think does a fantastic job because this is a pretty evil character when you think about it for a split second but his demeanor comes on as you know like fatherly it's and, and but what he's doing is horrible i i noticed that originally they had cast a uh, dennis hopper to be christoph which probably would have pushed the um two on the nose yeah yeah a little too aggressive so i really like um you know how ed harris plays it where it's like that, that really fantastic villain where you almost kind of want to like him, but... Well, he he comes across exactly how all of the villains in the real world do. Yeah, I mean, the, the dollar bill's the bottom line in the end, you know? He's like, yeah, I want Truman to find his own way, but not if it's going to cost me my, um, my giant enterprise. I don't um, even think for him it's the money. I got the impression for him it was like an art artistic, like, ego project. Yeah, yeah. Um, I it's like, you have the studio guys who are there, and for them it's the money. But for Christoph, I don't think he actually cared about the cash. Like, he, was, he wasn't exactly going out and living large. He spent all his time in his dome. So, for him, it was just a vanity thing, I think. And, um... Uh, what I was saying with the other actors, I did want to start with Ed Harris because he's very good in here, as are most of the actors in here. But looking at the cast list, it's always like Laura Lenny as Hannah Gill, acting as Meryl Burbank, Noah Emmerlich as Lewis Coltrane, playing Marlon. The point being that Truman doesn't actually know anybody. Right. The closest is Sylvia, and that whole thing comes across as a little creepy. Yeah, well, they keep them away as, as much as possible. Um, 
Sylvia's an interesting role. Um, Miguel, how does that kind of fit in? She's got an interesting one because she's not part of the system. Yeah, exactly. And I should mention that Ed Harris would, I don't know who his agent is working for, but he would later play the Demiurge in two other uh, mediums or projects. He would play the Demiurge in Snowpiercer. It's almost the same character to an extent. And uh, then in Westworld season one, he plays another Demiurge figure. I mean, he's two, three roles where he's creating simulations where he traps other forms of consciousness in whatever game he's having. But Sylvia, Sylvia definitely would parallel in the Gnostic stories the idea of Sophia. And Sophia was, you might say, uh, the the wisdom of the supreme consciousness that comes down to sort of awaken Adam, and that what she does, and she takes the form of Eve, turning things upside down in the book of Genesis, the Gnostics contended that it was Eve who was the superior being, and she's the one who wakes up Adam from his slumber, from uh, from the reality he's in, and tells him, no, you're trapped and there is something better. And Truman Show does a very good job because uh, as she tries to break to talk to Truman, I think there's a co- one scene where she gets manhandled by some other actors. And even in the Gnostic Gospels, when Sophia turns into Eve and is trying to awaken Adam, she is grabbed by the Archons. And in, in the Gnostic Gospel, she is brutally raped and beaten and sort of suppressed until she can later wake up and come to Adam and join him. But with the two, they basically are able to eventually break out of Eden and cause, we hope, the the fall of the Demiurge. So Sophia definitely plays the role of the Gnostic Sophia in in the myths. Well, yeah, Sil- Sylvia and Sophia are very close. Uh, that's that can't be a complete coincidence. Yeah, yeah, I mean Peter Weir and Andrew Nichols, who wrote the screenplay, they. They have no, uh, they never admitted it, but uh, there's probably reasons why they created such a, such a, a film. Um, one thing uh, some, some of our listeners might not actually be familiar about all these uh, Gnostic books. The, the point being that the Bible is like a very curated collection of writings from that period. Um, maybe if we could give just a, a quick rundown of, of what Gnostic Gospels are. Well, what we have basically is something called the Nag Hammadi Library, which was discovered in 1945 in Egypt, uh, around the time we dropped the atomic bomb on on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But uh, we think there's a great coincidence, like we did this horrible thing, humanity, and uh, the Nag Hammadi came to sort of awaken us. At least that's what Philip K. Dick thought. But um, these Gospels, one must understand that, yes, the Old Testament was pretty much set in stone back in those days, with some exceptions, although it was not uncommon for rabbis to reinterpret them, which is what the Gnostics did. They saw new stories in Genesis. They They made different versions. But a Christian canon was not settled until hundreds of years later after the purported death of Jesus. And it was a, a conversation and eventually a uh, a law which Gospels would make the final versions of the New Testament and stay with us for, well, thousands of years later. So there were many Gospels that were rejected because of theology, mainly because they had Gnostic ideas. Some of them are like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, 
the Secret Book of John, uh, and, a, and a, a whole bunch of others that never made it into the official New Testament canon. And those have a lot of the Gnostic myths, theology, ideas, and even philosophies. But I think even, I mean, obviously, you have to be sort of interested to go into the full Gnostic stuff. But I think a lot of laymen these days are aware that many of the Bible's myths existed in, you know, Egyptian religions and Mesopotamian religions and many, many religions prior to the Bible. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, no religion is in a vacuum. There's always a state of hybridity where religions are borrowing different older myths and stories and they're interacting and changing things. So, yeah, I mean, the story of Genesis can be found in the Mesopotamian myths. Uh, this other stories can be found in uh, Babylonian myths and so forth. So they're always borrowing from each other. And uh, as they say, nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I guess it's interesting that films like this, uh, stories like Philip K. Dick, is sort of like the modern version of, you know, like a 2,000-year-old book is not always going to read well today. So, you know, films like this are really kind of uh, insinuating these ideas, I guess, for the, the modern mind a little more. Yeah, that just makes sense. I mean, you look at the story of Hulk, it's just Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for a modern audience. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. So we try to draw from these old myths or these stories that have worked well, and we just uh, reboot them for a, mod for a modern audience. I guess the basic question is we all want to be happy people. And is it possible for Truman to live a happy life inside the dome? Nothing bad. I mean, even without the Gnostic knowledge, he's living sort of a life of quiet desperation. We've already talked to shorthand, right? He, he sells uh, insurance. <laughs> yeah, well, this is another one we can add to our list of um, if you want to make your character in a film look depressed, they have to work in insurance. Yeah, exactly. And his is even more depressed because uh, nothing he does really has any effect. I mean, his marriage is going to break up because it's going to make a fantastic plot. Uh, you know, can he be a happy person navigating? Well, I, th I think, I think the idea was that his marriage broke up because he threatened her with a knife. Oh, oh that too, of course. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, in the, uh, you should never pull a knife on your spouse, of course. But in the the quote unquote real world, I mean, there's a you're still somewhat in control. You know, maybe you send yourself to rehab or something. And I, I don't know how, I hope I'm not capable of that. So it's hard. I'm, I can't really say I'm putting myself in those shoes. But there's always, you know, other options where for Truman, there's never really that. There's no, he never gets his own option. He never gets to find that third path. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the thing. He can be, you know, happy in moments. But he's basically, it seems like he's never made a decision in his life. So he's never going to be truly happy in his soul. That's why he's so desperate to go to Fiji, because it's something that he's chosen to do. And even that, it's only because someone else put the idea in his head. Yeah, yeah, it makes for a nice little dreamy, you know, 
side plot when nothing particularly is happening on screen. <laughs> right. But, like, everything that he's ever really thought or done has been so meticulously controlled. Like, he says at the end, you know, you never had a camera in my head. But they almost did, because they saw every aspect of his life and controlled it as best they could. And uh, getting just getting to the the metaphors, of course, um, when with Adam in the prison, Eden, is he mindless? Is he like in some kind of stupor happy? Is he actually depressed? Is, do we get any look into that guy's head? I've definitely heard interpretations that eating the fruit is what gave him free will, right? Yeah, a little different. This and that. We got the Sophia thing and Sylvia in the movie. So there's a little t- twist, I guess, on the uh, one we usually think of. But um, it's Miguel, uh, if I could ask you, what do they get into Adam's mindset? Is he just an automaton before or what? He basically is, and some of them he is. Uh, they even call him a worm, and he just sort of uh, languishes there because the Archons are trying to create something they they think they can create better than the the supreme reality and they're also trying to create something that might be able to trap the shards of divinity and in those in some of them sophia basically bites and sends some of her essence and and, and adam stands up and they're like oh and then he said well now we're going to try to create other mechanisms to trap more light so it really depended on what myth the Gnostics like to switch their myths a lot and change different versions. But uh, all in all, Adam is basically, yeah, he's uh, the creation to trap the divine spark. And then later on, they think they've trapped even more with, uh, once they've subjugated the Sylvia slash Sophia slash Eve character. And I, even if Truman has sort of some weird baseline happiness, um, most of these actors are like having horrible times. Uh, like he says, his uh, fake wife clearly kind of hates him. Um, this is this isn't sort of the background story. I don't think it's directly alluded to in the movie. Um, but uh, Marlon Truman's best friend is supposed to have had like a serious drug addiction that doesn't appear in front of Truman. So when he disappeared for a month, the idea was he had actually been like sent off to rehab. Yeah, I, I, I did pick up on the center, like, disappeared for a month line. I was like, oh, okay, there was something there, but we never really got an explanation on screen. Yeah, yeah, so they allude to it. But, yeah, you know, everyone li- everyone having to put this facade for Truman are, like, miserable. You know, the father is uh, just annoyed that he's been, uh, you know, that he was, yeah, that he was run out of the show. So these are not happy people. Um, Christoph, I don't know. It's hard to tell what that guy said's like. I guess nothing's ever good enough, which is why he's a demir. So you, you keep pushing because it's not because of some kind of free will, but because that's the role to play, I guess. I'm trying to think if there was like any one character who did seem happy with their lot. The mother had that typical, like the mother you often see in movies where she's she's clearly not actually happy, but she's. She's the she's done everything society expects of her, so she can't admit that she's not happy. Well, she gives that sing-song voice to everything. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Girl, do you think anyone in this movie's happy? 
I don't know if that's even uh, relevant. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, I'm thinking of the saying, if it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. I think living a lie is one of the worst deaths we can have. There's no guarantee that Truman's going to be happy once he leaves the set. and uh, But it doesn't matter because he can live an authentic life, his own life. That's, I think, what matters the most. And it's interesting, what does Christoph say in one part when he's having, the, again, the interview with the journalist? We accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. That's one of the most chilling lines in movies because it's not because it's true. That's why I keep tr calling Truman a documentary, because uh, when this movie came out, people were like, God, the surveillance power of Christoph. It's incredible. Well, guess what? Uh, each one of us is being watched like Truman right now. There's no Google, other uh, other agencies. They can be just as everybody, the government can, or the powers can be just like Christoph and watch every move we want. And I keep seeing more references to Truman Show because I think it's really come to reality beyond the consumer society and the shallow media, beyond the surveillance state and how everything can be watched. Uh, basically all this Gnostic nightmare that's come true. But when you think about the pandemic, when Truman, just to walk out of his house, if he's not thinking right, there's going to be resistance. And you can say, well, it's a great metaphor. When we try to do the right thing, the universe almost like makes everything go wrong or forces us one way. But uh, it's almost like he could be in a pandemic because in different parts of the world, just to go to the store, just to walk outside, the things that used to be so effortless to do or that we we took for granted, that we had some freedom, now take much more energy. In some places you need paper, some places are clo uh, closed, some, some places have uh, contact tracing or you got to wear a mask. And if you forget your mask, you got to go back to the house and get your mask. In a way, we are all Truman because even if we live in the nicest neighborhood or the neighborhood of our parents or the city we knew, going out and just being free is very hard because, A, we're being watched. B, there's resistance to anything we want to do and we can't do it. And everything is really much more controlled in our lives the way that it's never been before. So uh, I see Truman is almost coming, becoming a reality today. Do we live in a dome? I don't know. One other, one thing that I also think is... is yes, because the earth is flat. No, no, no. <laughs> since we're being presented this way, <laughs> since we're being presented a reality all the time, there's a comedian, Bill Hicks, is, you know, after you watch the news, just uh, look out the window and see what's going on. <laughs> that's what Bill I think. Hicks is great. Yeah, that's the thing you know that's happening. And, you know, I don't... I mean, there are fires. There are people you know, stuck in horrible situations right now. Um, and you would want to help, but you can only directly influence basically what you can directly influence. Yeah, that, so this film is like 22 years old. Yeah. And it, it did predict the rise of reality television, like really impressively. The couple of things which it got wrong um, were that in this film, Truman had to be forced to become someone whose entire life is public, right? Whereas today, people are desperate to do that to themselves. Like, young people constantly volunteer themselves to be a permanent, like, media property. 
they do that all by themselves. They're always on their Instagram, on their YouTube, every little aspect of their lives. And then the other thing is that in terms of reality TV itself, they tried to give Truman like a really perfect life. Well, no one wants to watch that. If this was a real reality TV show, they would be every single day doing something to make that guy's life hell. Because that's what's entertaining. Okay, sorry, the other thing came to mind. Um, in The Matrix, they mentioned that the first Matrix was too perfect. That kind of gets to what you're saying. This place is mostly too perfect. I mean, mostly it's just being like he's being inconvenienced sort of by being pushed up against a sign for a photo shoot or something for the uh, commercial. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and he's, um, he's trapped there, which does start to grate against him a little. Yes. But in terms of his day-to-day life, yeah, he's got everything he could want. And I, I think he can see that it's fake. Now, he gets out of this place through a trial. You know, he faces death with with Kristoff basically trying to kill him. Yes. And that was the element of Gnosticism that we really talked about when we did The Matrix, right? Yeah. That but... you have to face death to, like, be yourself. You know, dramatic. <clears throat> excuse me. Dramatically, of course, it would be disappointing if he didn't go through that trial. But right, what if yeah, he did yeah. just happily sail his boat into the wall? Well, see, one of the strange things is for him that was already his trial because they've made it throughout the whole film that he has this like crippling fear of the water, right? So him getting on his boat and making that sail was already like a big trial. The storm was just for our benefit as the audience. <laughs> well, in, in, the, um, in these sort of traditions, what kind of, what shakes you out of it in the end? How, how I mean, they got the, I know um, in Egypt, they'd have the thing where you'd have to like swim with the crocodiles and things like that. So <laughs> uh, how much death do we need to be faced with in order to sort of open our eyes? Well, that's just normal. If uh, whether you're Gnostic or ancient Egyptian or Hermetic, uh, what did uh, Socrates say? The purpose of the philosopher is to die while living. Many of the Gnostic texts, and the well, this is all from the mystery religions. Many of the Gnostic texts say you have to die and resurrect while still in this body. You have to overcome. Uh, all your material fears and desires so you can become a new being. Uh, in these mystery schools, when they have the reenact going down to Hades, 
to meet these horrible gods. It was really, you could say it was a psychological process of incubating and facing your own demons inside of you so that you could come back a new being. So, yes, Truman is uh, goes through some trials. But what is interesting, more than anything, I feel, and it's been caught by one scholar, but the only way Truman can defeat Kristoff is by integrating Kristoff. In other words, he tries all this stuff and he's still trapped. When he starts to be really tricky and double-handed and sneaky like his own father, that's when he escapes. And that's the classic Jungian idea that uh, you have a shadow. Obviously, you've got Truman, who's the light. You've got Kristoff, who's the darkness. When when he can integrate his darkness with Kristoff, in other words, use the same sort of trickery to get out of it and eventually stand up to Kristoff on his own terms with its own defiance, that's when Truman really wins. But at the end of the day, when you do this, I mean, what did Philip K. Dick to fight the empires to become the empire? That doesn't happen to Truman because... At the end, he does this bow when he says, you know, good night, good evening and all that, which tells the audience that he has not lost his innocence, which is what makes him so attractive to all the audience because he's genuinely an innocent being. He is a, a being who is divine. And that's what makes him, uh, yeah, makes him endearing. And he has not lost that even after he's taken all of some of Kristoff's uh, tricks and played him against him, basically creating a lie, pretending that he's asleep and tricking him and all that, basically out-deviling the devil. Yeah, I mean, he's got to basically learn how to be a person or interact with people because more or less in video game terms, he's only been interacting with NPCs for his entire life. Basically, yeah. <clears throat> well, Matt, you asked how much how much of a death do you need? But, I mean, both of us like, we killed an old version of ourselves when we left everything behind and flew to the other side of the planet, right? Yeah. And I feel like, uh, for me at least, and probably for you as well, that was a big... There's probably a big distinction between the person who lived in America and the person who lives in Japan now. Definitely. It doesn't, definitely. it doesn't have to be, like, a traumatic experience. You just have to let everything go and try something new. And, it, yeah, I guess I understand what it was like to be American a little more because... And, and just... And, recent events definitely just has been very interesting watching from the outside you know not not in an entertainment way but like you know truman's probably going to be curious what's happening inside that dome if it's just falling to decay or if they're going to try it again or something like that they'll just they'll just rent it out for tours i expect <laughs> um so luke you, you you got your subject on much on your mind yeah so um there's a quite a dangerous element to this film because Truman's behavior and beliefs, what he's going through, are very similar to real, like, paranoid schizophrenic delusions. Of course, in this case, Truman turns out to be right. But a lot of people have very similar thought processes, and the behavior is the same. You know, he's getting, he's getting irrational, he's getting irate, he threatens his own wife and best friend. Um, that's very real. And in this film, it's, you know, as the audience, we're rooting for him as he does that. And I just thought it was strangely on the nose, considering that it's not really, we're not meant to look at it from that angle. 
I guess uh, being kept asleep, and and again, asleep in the the Gnostic sense of the word in this case, but uh, Truman being asleep is, I guess, causing him psychological damage. I mean, the radio, yeah, like you said, the radio is talking to him. It's always been talking to him. That's normal for him. Yeah. I mean, not when it shorts out and you start hearing, like, the the crew. I mean, but when it's just like, Truman does something, oh, you like that coffee? Oh, I mean, it's it's always been that for him. The, um, are you familiar with gang stalking? Um, I think I've heard it, but let's go on with that. It's like, it's an online community of people who, basically paranoid, delusional people, who believe that, like, ev- people all, well, like with Truman, loads of people every day in their daily life are out to watch them, to get them, to convenience them, that they've been targeted by some alphabet agency, the CIA or whatever, for people just constantly to be watching them, inconveniencing them, and that they they start seeing it in everyday life, in everything. Like, oh, there was a guy on the bus today who was staring at me, he must be one of them. There was a guy, my neighbour, he was up at 6am doing something to irritate me, he must be one of them, they're trying to break me down, I'm not going to be beaten by the CIA. And then, you know, maybe once upon a time, you would have one person like that, their family, but now they find these online communities and they reinforce each other and it's a constant feedback loop and you end up with these people utterly convinced that that's what's going on and then you know stuff like the Truman Show gives them a framework to then they start believing yeah this is what's happening to me I'm not saying the film is like diabolical in any way I'm saying it's interesting that it does present you know, you know these things people have delusions about. Here's a version where they're right. Well, paranoia sometimes means you've been paying attention all this time. So I would say uh, definitely the Gnostic vibe was intense paranoia. And this was later taken on by, uh, well, Carl Jung had his visions, but he dealt with uh, paranoid schizophrenics. And then later on, of course, Philip K. Dick would really weaponize the idea of paranoia and the surveillance state and all that. And Philip K. Dick was a very uh, popular writer for any counterculture thought, which uh, later we could easily say would influence many of the directors. And you see this paranoid vibe in Dark City, The Matrix, uh, Truman Show, so many of these other Gnostic films that would come out in the late 90s. And it, it was uh, it was all right there. And I think a lot of it probably got weaponized with a distrust of the government with 9-11 and the Iraq War and all that other good stuff that has uh, continued and is definitely peaking here in 2020. I guess my question earlier, you know, can he be happy inside here? Wasn't quite what I was getting at. Can he be sane inside of this situation? Well, how do you define sanity? Living a lie? That's a good question. I mean, a fool's paradise? Is that, uh, I mean, if there's anything about Truman's show is that, yes, it's so easy to sell out and live this idyllic life and everything's okay as long as I pay my taxes and do what uh, Christoph says and I'll be fine and go through my daily life. But uh, is that really worth it in the end? Is that the best we can do, each one of us as human beings, just settle for the reality that has been given before us? I think Truman would tell us uh, no, and certainly Gnosis would tell you no. There is something better out there, and you need to to keep looking. What does Neo say in The Matrix? Uh, you know there's something, well, Morpheus tells Neo, you know there's something wrong with the world, you just don't know what it is. It's like a splinter driving you mad. 
And of course, the Gnostics and other mystics would say not everybody has the temperament or the spine to really search out there or search within to the great universe within that each one of us has within us. But there are those who are like Neo or even Truman that they they have a splinter in their mind that's driving them mad. They feel they need more and they feel that there's something wrong with the world and that there's a, a higher reality within and without out there. And the Gnostics would even take it even farther and said, yes, it's not even that. It's that this universe is a construct by uh, some, uh, as Paul would say, wickedness in high places. I want to tell you a joke that I heard on another podcast. Uh, there's a young man living in West Germany. He's living the high life, him and his friends, you know, they're discussing all these modern ideas of democracy and they're having a good time and loving the arts. And he gets a, a new job and he has to be shipped out to East Germany. And, uh, you know, his friends are all worried for him. He says, OK, well, here's the thing. I'm going to write you a letter, let you know how I'm doing. And if I feel like I'm if I'm telling you the truth, then I'll write my letters in blue ink. And if, you know, if I think if I have to tell you any lies, if I think I'm hiding anything, then I'll write the letters in red ink. So he ships out and, you know, a few weeks later, they get a letter and it's all written in blue ink. He says, ah, oh, turns out life here is wonderful. I have everything I could possibly need. I have, you know, entertainment, I have food, I have access to all the amenities, I have access to everything I could want. In fact, the only thing I don't have access to is red ink. <laughs> Love you it. can't, you can't, if you're not free, but you don't have the language to express that you're not free, or to understand that you're not free, you can trick yourself into thinking you're free. People today are convinced that they are free. But there are so many things controlling us, but they're not, you know, a man in a military suit, you know, telling us directly to our face, you can't do that, you can't do this. It's subtle and insidious in the ways that we're controlled. And so people can't express that they're not free. And Truman, he didn't, there was not an obvious man. Christoph wasn't saying to him to his face, no, you have to stay here. He just felt that he wasn't free, but he couldn't express it. The stained glass world, amidst the spectacular geometry, libations of the great spirit, behold how the caravans of light. Okay, um, I think we, I mean, this film holds up better today than it did when it came out, but it does have just just one more little, I guess, light touch. Um, it does have this like gated community. I think Seaside, Sea Haven is the movie, and Seaside, I believe, is the actual. Uh, panhandle town like this is a planned community they filmed in um, I, I guess it was kind of a 90s thing another one I know is uh, Disney built this celebration town where it's like come live here and if you want to sell your soul to Disney or something I, I don't even know if these towns are still running or not but that was a that was an interesting thing that doesn't date the movie in a bad way but it's just a trend that I found very interesting at the time that uh, crops up in here well it had that sort of 1950s vibe to it which has made the film more ageless than if they'd actually made it look 90s. Yeah, I'm looking online here. The Linney, uh, Laura Linney apparently studied the Sears catalog from the 50s to develop her character's poses, as it says on Wikipedia. That smile and the, oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
That reminds me of another movie that's definitely has very strong Gnostic themes, and I'm seeing more and more, and that's Pleasantville. Also came out in the late 90s, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think, does it even have Flora Lenny? Good question. I don't know. Spider-Man is in it. Tobey Maguire, I think, is in it. And uh, the girl from Legally Blonde is in it. Who else? Yeah, I did f- kind of feel like that was the one that we, uh, when we were on email, uh, after the email, it's like, oh, yeah, it was pleasant. We should put pleasant uh, on that list. Yeah, the late 90s just seemed to be a time for, for Gnosticism, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. And you wonder what happened or what did it predict? Or sometimes I feel it's almost 2020. As they're having a nostalgia about the 50s, I see more and more people having nostalgia about uh, those Gnostic movies of the late 90s. And we've elevated Keanu Reeves as the the the, the Internet's boyfriend and all this other stuff. So we'll see where the we'll see where things take us. But I think more and more people are realizing that uh, this construct we thought was civilization is far from civil and it's far from real, and it's certainly far from being uh, a foundation for anything lasting. Well, if we're talking about this just actually as a film, I think it's interesting that they never tried to hide from the audience what was going on. Because you can imagine a version of this film where it's all from Truman's point of view, and the TV show thing is a big twist, like the third act mark. But I think, and I think, because then, as reading the Wikipedia, the film was originally written as much more of a thriller. And I feel like in that version, that would have been what happened, right? But I think if you do it like that, it's such a... It, it might have been a bit too much of a twist, and people just wouldn't have bitten it. Whereas I think doing it this way, leaning into it all the way through the film, with the commercials and the, you know, the sets and stuff, and giving us the audience snippets all the way through... We're still emotionally connected to Truman, but we believe what's going on much more deeply by the time he discovers it. And it certainly helped with the wonderful Philip Glass soundtrack. Very good music. It's a great soundtrack, yeah. Um, and I, I actually noticed uh, he shares that one. Of course, when, that's, when those arpeggios come in, it's uh, very noticeable. But uh, there, there's a composer that did the rest of the music that I'm actually not familiar with. Oh, what was the name? That's actually, that's what I'm oh, you're looking tracking up now. down at the moment. <laughs> I am looking that up. Yeah, sorry, I should have, maybe I should have done that first. Um, oh, oh, it's got its own page, that's why. Okay. Here we go. Burkhard Dahlwitz. I have not heard of Yeah, I've never heard that word. Else. Yeah, so that's, I guess we always think of Philip Glass here, but I was just saying that it's, uh, it looks, I, I, yeah, yeah, I guess he's not Big Shakes, but he did a good job with his spot, too. I guess, I mean, he wrote the lighter music. The real heavy stuff is Philip Glass, but... Yeah, and that's from a previous soundtrack, Paul Wakatsi. It's another movie, but they just, they took that and just put it on the Truman Show. Yeah, and, uh, those films are great, too. Uh, the first one's Koyana Scotsi. I don't know if anyone knows what we're talking about, but those are amazing films for Life Out of Balance, which I guess is uh, also sort of the thing in this one. Yeah, <laughs> there's no coincidence. Being paranoid means you're noticing stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a difficult time these days because the line between being paranoid and just being aware of things is getting thinner and thinner. Yeah, it's a Philip K. Dick world, as they say. <laughs> well, that, I mean, 
you know, Philip K. Dick himself was definitely on the, the paranoid side. Uh, from what I understand, he was a you know, fantastic writer, but a bit of a, a strange dude to be around. Just a question of having that self-control about which rabbit holes you go down and which ones you don't. But Dick joke. still had the... But you could always redeem Dick because he always left himself enough space to consider he might be insane. So he he always had that skepticism, and that's what kept him grounded and kept him going because uh, there were times he'd be like, well, it's aliens ruling the world. Okay, it's these mystic beings from the Gnostic world. Oh, it's government uh, government agency poisoning my food. And sometimes he'd say, you know what? I think I'm just crazy. I think I'm having a delusion, and I'm just going to go grab a burger so <laughs> um sometimes we make fun of it on the show that i i try to live by the tenet of i don't believe in anything different than not believing in nothing but i guess that's um i mean you, I, maybe i'm a nutcase but uh i feel like that's where you can think about these things and and not go nuts because i'm not believing it, i'm just looking at it yeah, matt is slowly infecting me with that <laughs> Yeah, well, what did Philip K. Dick say? Uh, it is sometimes an appropriate response to reality to go insane. And, of course, then Carl Jung could counter him and say, show me a sane man, sane man and I will cure him for you. So I don't think the side of the sanity is much better, which is the whole idea of Sea Haven, these sort of, as you said, NPC characters living this straight-laced life, this lie in Truman uh which one of us would really want to live that kind of life? Like you're talking about just this insurance guy who never travels, never takes risks, lives the most vanilla life. And it should be also noted, too, that it's I think the first time he meets Sylvia is in the library. She tries to counter him. And uh, as some have noticed, the libraries where Kristoff has less power or can't see him as well, or that's what it shows. Because, uh, again, that's knowledge is power, and knowledge will set us free in the end. Or at least plant the seeds in us. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we'll start. Um, Miguel, do you have any other big thoughts on this movie? No, I think we've covered them all. Again, uh, an amazing slew of Gnostic movies. I'm still wondering why they all came out in the late 90s. Could it be sometimes before a millennium or even before a millennium, you've got this apocalyptic fervor, and these movies were definitely all warnings about the technological media and shit show that was going to come in the 21st century and some of them predicted it pretty well or what they were tapping into again it might have just been an influence of the trippy psychedelic writers like philip k dick and the influence of joseph campbell and carl jung and uh, Ray Bradbury and all these other uh, speculative writers of the 70s that really influenced many of the directors of the 90s that would give us these type of films. So, yeah, still speculating on it, but I'm glad this film got made. And as I say, look at it more of a documentary. It'll be more useful to your life. Um, I was just thinking one real early example of this. Um, I know Luke's seen it, but the, the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage has the captain basically being invited into this sort of thing. Like, they just want to watch him, the, uh, the, the aliens on his planet. Later, once he becomes mortally injured, he takes them up on their offer, basically, which is kind of a bummer ending, in a way. 
<laughs> there's an episode that's called the return of the archons i mean uh they knew of this stuff in star trek and of course you have certain agnostic themes that happen a lot in star trek the twilight zone and so many of those other great shows that would again influence the writers and directors of our times oh well two things on that yeah i think truman show was based on a twilight zone episode according according to the wikipedia yeah but, I mean, in Star Trek, you have all the holodeck episodes, right? Like, the Barkley the Bark- the episodes are all about, you know, it doesn't matter how perfect this is, is it real? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But, um, yeah, I was going to say, actually, that Return of the Archons is how I first learned, because I was like, what's an Archon? And I looked it up, and it worked. That's how I first heard about what that term meant, so... <laughs> uh, um, anyway, uh, pulling the boat into the wheelhouse, uh, Miguel, you, you've got books, you've got podcasts. Can you, uh, tell our listeners where they can find a bit more of uh, your stuff? Yeah. Either just uh, type in a young bite Gnostic radio or go to the God above God dot cam. And you'll find my website with yes, books, podcasts, social media, videos that I've made, yada, yada, just the whole Gnostic media experience will, which will be just as positive as the message of the Truman show in the matrix. But for some people that's reality and it's uh, better than living a lie. But if anything, it's a, uh, another alternative spirituality and philosophy out there. I, 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 we were just talking to a guest last week where I was like, yeah, we have a guest. I can sometimes kind of just like, uh, sit back and, and relax a little more. But yeah, today I got to keep the brain rolling on this kind of subject. So <laughs> thanks for uh, getting with us on this one. Um, yeah, it was an engaging Luke? one. Yeah, speaking <laughs> of nostalgia for the 90s, um, if you want to listen to my Pokemon podcast, you can find that on Twitter at LukeLovesPKMN. And if you like the music you heard in this episode, you can find Matt's music online at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. And for our own thing, just uh, if you want to chat with us in any way, um, MSF, oh man, my brain, all that Gnostic, man, you're going to have to do it. We're on Twitter at MLSFSpod, or you can find us on Facebook, just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. I learned to spell one day, but I just don't care. Just get it tattooed on your hand, MLSFSpod. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And <laughs> That would take some explanation, but that's good promotion, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Luke, what, what shall our dear listeners uh, do? Well, listeners, if we don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Valley of Guanji.